content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. Today, we are broadcasting previously aired segments. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Welcome to a special edition of Everyday Wealth. One of the fringe benefits of hosting this podcast is that I get to meet some of the most well-regarded experts in their respective fields. And for today's show, what we thought we'd do is curate some of our favorite interviews with these experts around the topic of transitioning into retirement. First up, we'll talk with Dr. Riley Moynes on how to navigate what he calls the four phases of retirement. Then Marsha Mantel will discuss social security claiming strategies, particularly in regards to some of the unique challenges women face on this topic. And finally, we'll talk with Gordon Hartman and learn how his love for his daughter helped him reimagine what it means to be retired. And I'll tell you, this story is not just going to inspire you, it is going to tug on your heartstrings in a good way. I think you'll enjoy this episode and I hope it'll provide you with some fresh perspectives on the topic of retirement. I am here with Andy Smith and Isabel Barra from Edelman Financial Engines, and we want to welcome a special guest. His name is Dr. Riley Moynes. He's a retired educator and author. He wrote a book called The Four Phases of Retirement, What to Expect When You're Retiring. And his 2022 TED Talk on the topic has been viewed over three and a half million times. Riley, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Tell us what these four phases are and how they work. Well, the four phases are the result of um, uh, a number of years of research and interviewing um, well over 100 um, retirees. And um, I'm one of these people who uh, finds it easier to learn new things if I have a framework. I experienced retirement without this framework and found it to be uh, discombobulating might be the right word. <laughs> Love and that so word. In an effort to try to make sense of it for me uh, and perhaps for others, I conducted these interviews. And what I came up with was what I call the four phases of retirement. So briefly, phase one for most people uh, could be subtitled the vacation time. This is the initial phase of retirement. People are excited. Uh, they feel a sense of freedom. Uh, it's portrayed uh, in all the commercials uh, as people walking along the beach and doing exactly what they want. Uh, and, uh, and there's lots of travel that goes on in, in phase one, typically. But, you know, too much of a good thing can be too much. And I discovered that after a year or so, certainly in my experience and in the experience of many others, uh, we actually got a little bit bored. Uh, 
with is that all there is to retirement that like i i've had enough golf i've had enough beaches for a while i i need to do something that means something it's not all about the fun so phase one is wonderful but it's relatively short-lived uh, it's followed typically by uh, phase two uh, where we experience loss and we feel lost We'll say a little bit more about this, I think. But mm -hmm. uh, phase two is characterized by uh, five significant losses, including structure and purpose. And, uh, and, and it's also made worse by some other things that we'll chat about in, in uh, a few moments. But phase two is the most challenging of the phases, in my experience, for people. And uh, it's characterized, as I say, by depression and, uh, and serious stuff. Uh, fortunately, at some point, though, many people, many boomers will come to understand that they're going to live approximately one third of their lives, quite likely 30 years in retirement, hugely different from 1950, when average life expectancy in North America was 68 years, and we could anticipate three years of retirement. Baby boomers are looking at 30 years of retirement. And there comes a point where we say, hey, I can't go on like this. I'm feeling miserable. I don't want to feel miserable for the rest of my life. What do I need to do to break out of this and to turn things around? When people uh, express that, that's great because that leads to a period of rehabilitation. I call it phase three, trial and error. This phase is characterized by experimentation and adjustment. People try different activities and lifestyles to find out what works best for them to allow them to find a kind of new purpose and satisfaction in retirement. So phase three is kind of a turnaround and um, is, is a movement in the right direction. Phase four is, in my view, the ultimate phase. It's what I call the phase where we reinvent and rewire ourselves this is the phase of retirement characterized by a renewed sense of purpose and fulfillment. People who reach phase four, and I must say that I believe, based on my research, that only about 60 or so percent of retirees break through and reach mm. phase four. We're doing some work to try to increase that number as best we can. But people in phase four have successfully adjusted to retirement. They've found new ways to, to find fulfillment and satisfaction. So briefly, those are the four phases that uh, that I've um, proposed. So in hearing you talk about it, my supposition is that only 60% of people get to phase four because they get stuck in phase two. And phase two, by the way, is why I don't want to retire. It sounds, sounds awful. You yeah. mentioned a couple of the significant challenges, but you said there are five. What are they? And how do we get out of it? Um, well, the losses that I associate with phase two, uh, which, as I say, is the most challenging of the phases. So there are five significant, almost unavoidable losses that we've documented, all directly associated with retirement. We lose a sense of structure. Now, in phase one, we're happy not to have the structure that has guided our lives for years, and we're happy to be kind of doing what we want, when we want, where we want sort of thing. But that wears off, and I'm convinced that there's something in us genetically that requires a structure. 
So in phase two, we have lost that structure that has kind of guided our lives. We didn't always like it, as I say, but something in us requires a structure that has been lost when we retire. Uh, the second loss is that of identity. Males in particular, but certainly not exclusively, seem to identify with the work that they do. Uh, it's an important part of their being. And when they retire, that identity is lost. And so we find in many cases, people referring to themselves as what they used to work at years after they've retired. They find it difficult to give up that identity. Third loss is one of relationships, because oftentimes during our working careers, we establish relationships that in some cases turn into lifelong friendships. And while it's true, we can go back and have coffee with the guys or the gals after we've retired, but it doesn't take long for us to realize that they're kind of still in it. We're on the outside. We are outsiders, and it doesn't take us long to realize that we just don't fit anymore, and we don't tend to do that for a very long period of time. The fourth significant loss is one of purpose. Many of us find purpose in what we do. We love what we do. It gives our lives meaning. And when we retire, that sense of purpose has been lost as well. Fifth and finally, some people um, experience a loss of power because over a period of a working career, they may have assumed some responsibility for personnel or for budget, and they have a sense of power, which when they walk out the door for the last time, they become just a guy or a gal in the street. Now, we don't see these five losses coming, but they're all directly related to retirement. And they all happen. We lose them all at the same time. It's like, poof, gone. And it can be very traumatic for people. But you know what? It gets worse. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Doc. Great. That's fantastic. It gets worse. Let's all retire. <laughs> it, gets, it gets worse because there are what I call the three Ds that are associated not so much with retirement directly, but with a time of life in our 60s and 70s, which often overlaps with retirement. Physical decline, for example. You know, that silky, smooth golf swing that we once possessed is not quite so silky or so smooth anymore. And then there's the mental decline as well. Like, where are the keys? Where, you know, where's the converter? I left them here. They're gone. What happened to them? There's all that kind of thing. Secondly, of the three Ds, divorce. There has been, for those people over 50, a doubling of the rate of divorce since 1990. And for those over 65, the rate of divorce has tripled since 1990. Then, of course, the third D, depression, which we can say more about in a couple of moments. The highest rate of suicide in North America today, men over 75. So along those lines, you know, if you're in that phase two, if you are depressed, you know, yep. um, what, are, what do we do to fix that? I mean, how do you drag your way out of that to move into the other phases? How do you, how do yep. you find healing? How do you find purpose? Yep. Where do you begin? Well, let's just spend another moment on, on depression because it is very common in retirement. The Mayo Clinic says that there is a 40% likelihood that when you retire, you'll display aspects of clinical depression. 
Men are more likely to become depressed because of their identity with what they do. They seem to suffer from that more than females do. A, a study by UC Berkeley indicated that male retirees tend to experience high levels of satisfaction directly after retirement, which I associate with phase one, but then it falls sharply a few years later, which I associate with phase two. So how can we find healing? I, I propose that there are four ways, and we try to share those and get people to think about those in our, in our workshops. First of all, I think it's really important that we have to uh, apply some introspection. We're not particularly good at introspection, but this is hard work, and it doesn't come without some effort. So I ask people to identify what they would consider to be their unique purpose. Uh, by that I mean, what are the things or thing that you love to do and that you know you do exceedingly well? We've all got those things. We often don't think about them, but they can be important ammunition in breaking out of phase two. Secondly, I ask people to consider, they could think of a bunch of these. I ask them to list in our workshop just five past successes, victories, achievements. Everybody has them, but again, we don't often tend to think about them. So we identify what you love to do and do really well. We identify some of the past successes. And then thirdly, and this always amazes me, I ask people to look for the connections between those two. And there are almost always connections that people overlook between the things that they love to do and do really well and past successes. Of course, one leads to another, but people don't tend to see that. I ask them to try to draw those connections and so they can see the connections. And then fourthly, I ask people to look for ways that they can provide service to others. That is the underlying key component in my experience and my research about phase four. People in phase four provide service to others. Sometimes it's on a volunteer basis. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes I know of people, for example, who deliver prescriptions for the local pharmacy. They get a little bit of money for it. They get tremendous satisfaction out of providing necessary medication to people who can't get to the pharmacy, perhaps, for example. It makes us feel good and we get far better feelings from giving than we do from receiving. So those are the ways that I'm encouraging people to build up the ability to get beyond phase two. Andy and I are both chomping at the bit to ask you the next question, but I'm going to just jump in because as you ran through those four things, what if they all have to do until you get to the last one with work? Um, there is a good argument that people should not retire at least in the traditional sense. I would take the position that it's better for us to rewire, that is to take the things that we know that we're good at, things that we love to do, things that, that based on our experience and expertise we know we're good at, and apply them to perhaps a different situation than we're used to applying it to in our lengthy working or domestic career. We're talking with Dr. Riley Moynes. He's a retired educator, a very successful author with several bestsellers to his name, including what we're talking about right now. It's called The Four Phases of Retirement, What to Expect When You're Retiring. So, Dr. Moynes, these four phases. Yep. A lot of times in client meetings, I have talked about three phases of retirement, but it's mostly kind of age-based 
or yeah. health-based, right? So retirement to maybe age 80, 80 to 85, 85 to 88, anything after 88 is kind of a gift. In your research, have you found exceptions to these four phases? And if so, where do you see kind of the bigger changes hovering when people are kind of moving through this time in their life? Yeah, uh, I, I have found that there are two basic uh, exceptions to people experiencing the four phases. I believe that about 80 to 85 percent of retirees experience the four phases for different lengths of time and at different levels of intensity. I believe 80 to 85 percent of retirees go through those phases. But I found two exceptions. One exception tends to be entrepreneurs. Uh, people who ha love what they do, have been doing it forever. They have no intention of retiring in the traditional sense. What they might like to do perhaps is to spend a little fewer than 80 hours uh, doing what they've been doing for 40 or so years. They might like to back off a little bit as they train someone perhaps to take over from them at some point down the road. So entrepreneurs have no, as I say, no intention of retiring in the traditional sense. They don't experience phases two or three. They know what they love to do. They just keep on doing it, perhaps, as I say, at a, at a lower level of intensity. The second group of people who I've found have been able to avoid the phases are people that I would call hobbyists, people who have, over the course of their working or domestic careers, created hobbies or they have a passion uh, that's uh, sort of outside, whether it's teaching, painting, piano, coaching, volunteering, whatever it might be, these folks tend also to bypass phases two and three. And what they're looking forward to is being able to spend more time doing the things that they have had restrictions on their time over the last uh, number of years. So they just move on. They found their passion. They just want to get on with it and do more of it. Those are the exceptions that I've found. We've got a lot of pre-retirees who are listening. And if you were taking all of this and bundling it into a prescription for moving through these phases as smoothly as possible, transitioning to retirement, setting yourself up for success so that you don't get stuck in phase two, what would you tell people to do? Um, I tell them all the time in our in our workshops because we have a number of free retirees who tend to be there as well. Uh, I would say to them, it's important to be aware of the four phases. I believe that forewarned can be forearmed. I think it's helpful if we know what to expect down the road, at least in general terms. Uh, so I believe it's important that they become aware of the four phases, that they are likely to experience uh, some, if not all of them. So that can be helpful, I think, just to have that framework that they can expect. Uh, I encourage them not to retire, at least in the traditional sense of retiring and then heading to the rocking chair. No, that's not what this is about. That may be the case for a couple of years in phase one where you just do as little as you, as you can and you're kind of on vacation. But we're going to live 30 or 40 years in retirement. And so it's important that we rewire that these pre-retirees identify their skills, their abilities, their experience, their expertise. And at the same time, they need to be clear about what it is that's going to give them a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment when they retire. 
and then they can start to consider what aspects or what areas they might wish to apply their skills and expertise in retirement. But again, I have found that the fundamental underlying principle for success in phase four is being open and willing to provide service to others. It makes us feel just great. Dr. Riley Moynes, thank you so much for spending this time with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. And Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Of course. Please come back. And Andy and Isabel, as you come out of this conversation, anything you're going to take back to your clients? I think that it's having this conversation. I, I often say, you've heard me say it here before, that there's these three phases. I don't know if, Andy, you say the same ones, but I say there's the the go, 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 the slow go, and the no go, right? And that's a really simplified way of just saying, like, when you first retire, you're, you've got a lot of energy, you got a lot of things on your bucket list, on your to-do list, you're going to get out and you're going to start doing stuff. And then, you know, yeah, you've done it and you, you maybe don't want to do it anymore and things start to slow down and now it's the slow go phase. And then eventually you know, you can't do a lot when you're in your 90s and when you're 100 years old. And so maybe that's the no-go phase. And I think having this conversation where maybe there's something in between it, which is like the uh-oh phase, right? <laughs> which is that, look, things are not, it's not, this trajectory is not going to be easy. And that this is something you need to be emotionally ready for and really accept that maybe the traditional form of retirement isn't for you. And if it's not, that's okay too. You know, and and everyone's got to do it their own way. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with kind of really zeroing in on this trial and error concept, right? Whatever you think the plan is going to be, it could totally change, right? This is not a, oh, you've gone through the income planning and expenses and you know where you're going to be and we've figured out a second home or not and all these things. And you've got this beautiful little plan and you set it on the shelf and you forget about it forever. Right. This is a, hey, let's try some things. And so this third phase, trial and error, you experiment. You experiment and adjust. If it doesn't work, that's okay. You still have time. But just because you think you know where you're going doesn't always mean that that's really where you actually need to be going. But if you don't know all of those other things, it's like a, you got to be this high to ride the ride, right? You need to know where the finances are going to come in, right? This is kind of the emotional, psychological, kind of being a human being sort of aspect to retirement. And I think that is absolutely overlooked by people. All they're looking at is a date. They're looking at this first couple of years and they think it's going to continue on into infinity. And that's just not the case. And I also would, I would add that I think, you know, a lot of people when they, retire and they think, well, maybe I should go back to work for financial reasons or whatever. I mean, you know, whether or not it be part-time or 10 hours a week or 15 hours a week, you know, don't beat yourself up over it. Maybe you look at that and say, well, that's my way of dealing with sort of the mental health component of this Mm -hmm. is I am going to have a job. I am going to do something. I'm going to write that novel. I'm going to do whatever it is that's going to take up some time and is going to structure my day. And don't make yourself feel guilty about it. Like somehow I'm a failure because I couldn't do what my neighbor down the street is doing when they retired and went on, you know, 12 vacations a year. That's just maybe not the trajectory that's right for you. Exactly. Stick with us and we'll be right back. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second-guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, 
they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. And now I want to welcome a guest onto the show. Her name is Marsha Mantel. And for nearly 30 years, she has helped financial firms and financial advisors increase their knowledge of how to deal with Social Security. She wrote a book called What's the Deal with Social Security for Women? And she's got a new book called Cooking Up Your Retirement Plan that mixes two of my favorite things, cooking and personal finance, and that's available now. Marsha's going to help us specifically with where women tend to get stuck and make the wrong moves when it comes to Social Security. Marsha, thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to see you. Thanks, Jean. Thanks for having me. I got to ask, cooking, personal finance, I mean, I have tried to mix the two. What made you put them together in this way? I, I think it might be the hours I sometimes spend on Saturdays watching Food Network TV, Jean. And it really is about, you know how our industry is so laden with jargon and technical words and such. And we want everyone to come and join us in our party, but nobody does. So so let's reverse engineer it. Let's get us into the kitchen with real people trying to make real decisions about really hard stuff. So it went that way. Well, I love it. Thank you. Um, We've been talking all show about Social Security and some basic guidance involving claiming strategies, but I know that when it comes to women, it's different. So what's the one big thing that women need to think about as we're heading towards Social Security age? It is your work history, if you can believe it. It's knowing how many years you've have of actual covered work, meaning you've paid into Social Security, because the magic behind your benefit is that you have 35 years of earnings, which is actually a lot of years. So many women, you know, Jean, we, we've popped in and out, right, of our careers for all these other obligations we also have. And by the time you realize what's happened, you're 60, you're 62, and it's like, oh, wait, I don't have 35 years. I don't have the best benefit I could possibly have. So they're caught off guard. And frankly, they're mad because they didn't know about it earlier when maybe they could have worked a couple years longer. So that's a really big number to know, to watch, and to make sure you know what your own work history is. And frankly, if you've been covered by a pension, like if you worked for the state or local government, um, the teachers in 18 states who don't have Social Security, they get a pension instead. But that pension's only meaningful if you were a career person. So you have your 35 years essentially working for, you know, that, that organization. So you really have to get underneath this to know your own situation. And as Andy was saying, the best way to get a grip on what your situation is, is to go to ssa.gov and make sure that you are in the system and that you're paying attention to how your benefits have and will continue to accrue. 
there are a lot of women out there who have spouses. Why is it important to coordinate Social Security with a spouse if you've got one? And what's the best way to do that? Yeah, this coordination is sort of um, what we call it a, a hidden word for talk to each other. Like we have got to know what one another is doing. And in, in the spirit of being fun and having a spouse, you know, we're really busy. Right. You don't always have this opportunity to sit down and talk to each other about something as exciting as social security claiming. But it's incredibly important because you're trying to achieve a couple things when you're deciding about social security. The first is you want as much money as you can have from this income source coming into your household while you're both alive and having fun in retirement. But you also have to look at the other side of the coin here. That is what happens when only one of you is left. And you want to protect that surviving spouse and make sure they have as much money as possible because one benefit will drop off when the first person dies. So you want it to be the most money for your 80s, your 90s when you reach 100. So what's the best way to do that typically? Uh I recommend, we're back to the statement, right? Both of you set up your My Social Security accounts, pull down your statements and look at them because they'll be, in most marriages, there's a higher earner and a lower earner. And you want to know how much, that higher earner is really important in the strategy here. How much income benefit will that person be able to bring into the household and then protect the lower earner? And then for the lower earner, Will they have just their own benefit because they've worked long enough or do they get a spousal benefit and they get a spousal benefit even if you never worked, but you stayed married, you know, to the same person for a long time, you get half of what I call the anchor benefit. So you're entitled to 50% of, you know, if you're married to a man, 50% of his. And those are important numbers to know. So it is a matter of looking at the statement, mapping it out, who's bringing in what. And it gets into, as Andy was talking about before, the claiming strategy, not just for you, but for your spouse. Because if your spouse's benefit or half of your spouse's benefit is going to be more than your full benefit, it's really important to maximize that spouse's benefit. Yeah, it really is. And I use the term a spousal top up. So for whatever you've earned through your history, and let's just say it's $1,000 is the benefit amount, you always get what you've earned. So let's make sure you're clear there. But if you had a really high earning spouse, and, and we'll just say he, for this example, and he is getting $3,000 as his anchor benefit, and you're getting $1,000, well, you're actually eligible for half of his as a calculation. So you're eligible for $1,500, not just your 1000 So that $500 top up is really big money coming into a household. But the key is he has to be claiming before you can get your top up. So you're coordinated through social security anyway. We did a recent show on gray divorce for anybody who didn't hear it, you can go to everydaywealth.com or wherever you get your podcasts and you'll find it. How does divorce impact social security benefits? I mean, you mentioned being married for a long time. 
Yeah, there are two major factors. There are what I call the gating rules. You have to get over some hurdles to make sure you qualify as a divorced person to claim on your ex. But then you also have to know if you're the lower earner or the higher earner between the two of you. So the gating factors are you had to have been married for 10 consecutive years or longer. So with gray divorce, a lot of times, I mean, we're talking about couples who had been married 30, 35, 40 years and then calling it quits. So they qualify from that perspective. Each has to be 62 or older. The divorce has to have filed two years ago or longer, or the other person is claiming already and you cannot be remarried. So if you meet those four requirements, then were you the lower or the higher earner? Well, if you're the lower earner, you're entitled to that same spousal top up that a married person would be because you had created this economic household, this financial household. So you're still able and eligible for half of his on a calculated basis. But that then brings up the higher spouse the higher earning spouse, and they're often miffed or concerned that their benefit is going to be impacted. It's like, well, I have to give the big chunk to my ex-spouse. You don't. That's not how the rules work. If your benefit is $3,000, you get your $3,000. Call it a day. And if you remarried, your second spouse or third spouse is also entitled to spousal benefits if they otherwise are eligible. And does your second spouse have to be married or third to you for 10 years before they get it? No, just for one year. What about when your spouse dies? What's the deal for widows and widowers? Well, this is where you really see the power of that waiting longer to claim and getting your biggest benefit if you were the higher earner. Because what happens when the first spouse dies the remaining spouse steps into the larger benefit. I talk about it, stepping into the shoes of that person. So if it's the husband who was the higher earner, getting that, we'll say, $3,000 a month benefit, and he dies first, well, his spouse then loses their benefit, the lower benefit, and steps into the higher benefit. And this is a way of helping protect the household, which now there's only one person in it, but still protect that household from poverty, from having to make dramatic changes, you know, in your 80s or 90s. Um, and it, it's a very much a protection strategy. But Jean, I think you know as well, if you're a younger widow or a younger widower, you can also get Social Security survivor benefits if you have young children at home. So it's really important to know that. And that, I find that to be the bigger surprise out there that, you know, someone who's say 40 and sadly becomes a widow, but has three little kids, you know, and while they're trying to figure out what's next here, they can get survivor benefits for themselves and for the children up to a certain maximum. All right. We've talked about married. We've talked about divorced. We've talked about widowed. Let's talk about singles. What do single women need to know? That the odds are really good they're going to have a very long retirement, Jean. I mean, we're talking 30 years for a lot of women, maybe longer, depending when you retire. So the importance you place on claiming your benefit, your social security benefit, is almost second to none that this is one of the most powerful and important financial decisions you're going to make for retirement because it's a guaranteed income stream. So you really want that income coming in and you need to know exactly where your income's coming from 
through all the decades of retirement. And knowing when to quit working is going to be one decision versus when to claim is a different decision. So it's very important. And unmarried women in particular, they tend to rely on Social Security for a much larger percentage of their income than married women. So it's a big decision. Huge decision. Any last words of advice, not just for women, but for men when it comes to Social Security? Yes. Well, back to the statement. I think that's your most powerful tool. And note that when you set up your My Social Security account, you see the statement, but you don't see your earnings history anymore. You have to pull that from a different link. So make sure you're looking at your complete earnings history. And then I know we didn't cover it here and and you might have during the session, but I also want to say these headlines, the scary stuff that Social Security trust fund is going bankrupt, the trust fund is not going bankrupt. And it's serving to really unnerve people. There's a lot of noise and there will be for the next 10 years. It's a little savings account attached to the incoming dollars that is being used to pay benefits. And we do need to get that shored up. It's a law. Congress needs to take action. But please don't make knee-jerk reactions and make knee-jerk decisions thinking that this program is going bankrupt. Marsha, you are full of amazing information. Thank you so much for sharing it. And if our listeners want to find out more about you, what's the best way to do that? Hop over to my blog and website, boomerretirementbriefs.com. This next story is going to melt your heart because it's about a father who built a whole new world for his child. His name is Gordon Hartman. He has a child named Morgan who was born with both physical and cognitive disabilities. And it all started back in 2006. The family was on a vacation. Gordon watched Morgan not be able to participate in swimming with some other children because she was not able to be verbal. It, it, it made Gordon incredibly sad, put a lump in his throat. And after seeing his daughter excluded, he started to think about what he could do to change that. And he started on a quest to create a space where no one was left out. His idea was to create an inclusive theme park. That's how Morgan's Wonderland came to be. Gordon is with us. Gordon Hartman, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. This is just such an incredible story. Well, Jeannie did a great job going over the, a little bit of the history of uh, what's allowed me an opportunity for uh, some 15 years now to really give back and bring about inclusion. So thank you for the opportunity. Of course. I mean, I just gave a few cursory details. Tell us about Morgan's Wonderland and, and how it really came to be. Take us there with your words. Yeah, well, um, back about 18 and a half years ago, I had the opportunity to retire, if you will. I had run many different companies in real estate, mortgage, and title, and a lot of different things. And I was very young at the time, about 41, and and uh, I, I just decided that it was time for me to do something that I thought would be, um, I guess, in many ways, um, more committed to assisting versus just assisting myself. And watching uh, my daughter uh, and the opportunities that she had 
has because of opportunities that we were able to give her. Uh, we've started a foundation uh, in uh, two th- late 2005. Uh, you mentioned the story of 2006. Uh, in early 2000, or when we started the foundation, it was about helping different nonprofits to be able to develop ways to become bigger, to do more, to assist our friends with special needs. But what happened in 2006 really opened my eyes to a need of bringing about more inclusion. And what I mean by that is there's a million people, I mean, I'm sorry, a billion people on this earth who have some form of special needs, uh, whether it be cognitive, physical, whatever the case may be. And in many ways, uh, they're excluded. Uh, and I watched that happen in particular uh, with my daughter, as you explained, uh, when we were uh, having fun in a pool, I got out, she saw three other children at the other end of the pool, uh, two of them throwing a ball back and forth, and she wanted to be a part of it. So I watched as she moved herself closer to them, but as she did that, because she could not communicate in a normal fashion, those wonderful kids uh, got out of the, out of the pool. And Morgan uh, was by herself. And I, that, as you mentioned, did bring a lump in my throat because as a father, you always want your child and, and your children to always be a part of something. And so uh, I mentioned it to my wife. We started talking about it and said, well, why don't we build a place uh, where those with and without special needs could come together and play? Now, what that would mean is uh, bringing uh, those with uh, even acute special needs, uh, those who are in wheelchairs, visual disabilities, hearing uh, issues, all sorts of different uh, potential items that they have that affect their lives, that slow things down or not allow them to do things like um, what we, many times people refer to as a, the typical child or the typical adult, but could have the opportunity to join together and play. We didn't know if this would work, but what we did is we put out an email and said, we're thinking about this idea, don't know totally what it means. But here's the beautiful thing. Uh, hundreds of people showed up to hear about this general concept of an ultra accessible, fully inclusive theme park. And so here we are now, uh, some uh, 13 years later after it opened, uh, seeing over um, 2.8 million people from all 50 states and uh, 121 countries uh, from around the world. Uh, what is unique about it? Well, what it does is it allows individuals with and without special needs to play together. And we're not just talking children. Many times we refer to special needs individuals uh, as uh, children, but it, they do grow up. You know, Morgan's going to be 30 in September, and she still has many of the issues she had when she was three. And so that's how the park was designed with all those thoughts in, in play. And um, we didn't know if it would be successful with those with and without special needs come to play. And what we found is, yes, they will and they enjoy it. And it's open and brought down barriers with the hope that the next time a situation like that may happen in a pool, that maybe those three children will have experienced something like Morgan's Wonderland and said, hey, come on, I get it. Let's all play together. And that's the idea behind this. And anyone who has a special needs comes in for free. We don't charge because we don't want to present them another barrier, and that being economics. Because as I many times say, the reason I'm involved so passionately and so involved on 24-7, 365 and what I do is because Morgan's one of the lucky ones. You know, she has a doctor. She has a therapist. She has the medicines. She has everything she needs to be able to get through life in a very in a more comfortable way. Uh, most people don't. And so if we charged, it would cut many people out because of the financial issue of having to uh, come to uh, Morgan's One Land, not be able to afford it. So that's a quick overview of Morgan's One Land. Since then, we've expanded a whole lot, a lot more things going on. But that was the beginning and, and really what started us on this whole idea of inclusion. 
I know there are people who are listening who are just like, tell me where this place is. I want to go. I want to, I want to bring my child. Well, we're in a great, great city, a city that I've grown up in, and and I really consider it one of the top cities in in the country, and that is San Antonio, Texas. Uh, We're right in the heart of Texas. Uh, uh, It's a a city that um, has embraced what we're doing, but as it's embraced, so has the state and so has this country and the whole idea of bringing about more inclusion. For people who are looking to create a little bit of this in their own backyards. What has this taught you about inclusion and about how to facilitate it, maybe in a, in a smaller, more cost-effective sort of a way that people can take what you've learned and, and apply these lessons in their own day-to-day lives? Well, let me give you an example, and in respect to that, you know, it doesn't. It, the small things make a big difference in what we're talking about. Uh, for example, the carousel. We made some minor adjustments to it, but when we went to the person who was building the carousel, they kind of looked at us and, "Why do we need to make these adjustments?" And once we explained it, they went, "We're all on board." Uh, and so, but they're small things. And, and so what someone can do if they wish to bring this to their community is basically find a, a place where they can develop uh, a, a plan of uh, a park and, and make sure that when they're thinking about it, they're curious about how to ensure inclusion. When you come into Morgan's Wonderland, you don't need to build a $50 million Morgan's Wonderland. You can do it with much less money by just uh, adapting some of the things that we have done, uh, whether that be a train ride or whether that be something as simple as a sand circle. Uh, why I say a sand circle versus a sandbox is because if it's a sandbox, an individual is, uh, in a wheelchair is not getting in. And so we also raise the sand so that person can also touch the sand if they can't get down to the sand. And we also have ways in which they can play with the sand without having to get out of their wheelchair. These are small little details that make a big difference to ensure that 100% of our individuals have an opportunity. Taking that same example, that sand circle, something very simple, something very inexpensive. We also have a gentleman, it's a good example that I often use, who's in his late 30s, quite a large gentleman who plays in the sand circle because at a cognitive level, he's about a two or three-year-old. But the children uh, that are around him or the other adults that are around him are enjoying it just as much as he is. Uh, and he's having fun. They're having fun. He's feeling acceptance. They're learning that being around a, a larger gentleman, older person to play with is okay. And it's, it's, it brings about that whole element of a whole new thought process. Not hard to do, but simply just getting outside the box and being curious is the best way I would advise people to look at a situation and being able to make this and bring this to their community. And we're seeing that all over the country and not only in the continent in the United States, but even outside the country uh, working. And now we're hearing from states and we're hearing from airports and we're hearing from uh, different groups that say, how can we do this in a bigger way? So one of the things that we're doing is actually forming Morgan's Inclusion Institute, which will open in about uh, 12 to 18 months so that we can assist individuals and groups and cities and uh, states, et cetera, on how to bring about more inclusion in respect to whether it be on a small scale or a big scale. One of the things that's so clear about you is that you love what you do. Um, yeah, you, you've come out of your, your, your job running companies and, and you have very, very clearly found something that is purposeful to you. We talk a lot on this show about that, about retirement and about figuring out what is going to light you up once you leave your workaday career. What advice do you have for other people about finding something that is meaningful to them? 
Well, see, I was very blessed by having a daughter who had special needs. And so when I had the chance to say, how was I going to take my life from one of some success to one of, of significance, it was, it was right in front of me. I, I knew. But if, and, and I think everybody has that opportunity to find what that is. Mine was uh, just very clear. But if it's not clear, I've often talked with people and I start saying, think about what are you, you're, I know you're passionate about something, it, it, whether it's individuals with special needs or it's about whatever this or that. Find what that is. And, um, and, and many times in a kind of a funny way, I will say retirement's way overrated because I will tell you that, yeah, when I was 41, I could have just backed up, had what I needed resources wise to just take it easy. But I am so blessed and honored that I have the opportunity to really have a, a 60 hour week. I'm still working, if not more than what I used to, because passion and fulfillment is much more than money. And I think that at some point you realize that uh, I was blessed to be able to see it early on. And it's been, was by far the best decision. Money is necessary. It, it, it gets us to be able to survive and be able to do what we have to do. But once there's a point where you say, hey, I might be able to help in some way others, to me, that's something much bigger than any dollar can give you. Gordon Hartman, we are going to leave it there. For people who are looking for additional information on Morgan's Wonderland and the forthcoming Morgan's Inclusion Institute, where can they find that? Well, first of all, there's a lot of other things. We have Morgan's Inspiration Island. We have Morgan's Wonderland Camp. We have Morgan's Wonderland Sports and a lot of other things. The Institute, as you mentioned, a lot, and we also have a multi-assistance center. I won't get into all that but because I, I know of time, but what I will tell you is if you go to goinclusion.com, goinclusion.com. You can see all the different things that we are currently active with in respect to bringing about more inclusion uh, to the, the world. And to spark cultural change, that's really what we're about. Uh, and we're just getting started. Uh, there's a lot more on the agenda. There's a lot more that needs to be done. But goinclusion.com, where I'd suggest people go to learn more. What an amazing story. Gordon Hartman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for this opportunity. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this special episode today. If you've got questions or concerns about retirement or about your wealth plan in general, give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call at 833-PLAN-EFE. They can help you reach your retirement and financial goals, whatever they may be. Be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts or just visit us at everydaywealth.com where all of our episodes are available to you. Thanks again for listening and we'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.